<laughs> I'll go with that. You give me, ready? Hello and welcome to Random Science. Random Science is a podcast about the world of science, technology, and medicine all around us. We talk directly to professionals and scientists, of course, in their respective fields, but we also talk to everyday people about the changes that we all have to deal with. Today, we're talking about global warming and climate change. We wanna know more about what they are and how we as humans may have contributed to them. I'm your host, Francine Dash, and today we have Dr. Gabe Filippelli from Indiana University's, uh, you're the director of, environment, of the Environmental Resilience Institute, correct? That's exactly right. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate having you be a part of this discussion. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do at the Institute? Sure. I'm, I'm also a professor, and in my professor role, I study climate change, and climate change impacts largely on human health and the environment. The Institute itself does broadly that as well as a little bit more. So we're, we were formed about five years ago in reflection of the fact that there's a lot changing in the environment, even here in Indiana. Right. right. A, lot of, a lot of impacts that communities are dealing with, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, bird species dying off, uh, insects declining. And so what we realize is that we need to bring science to the people. We need to bring the best climate science and not, not bore them to death with graphs and charts, but rather show them mm -hmm. how to grapple with the effects of climate change that are already happening right now, as well as starting to forecast the climate changes that will continue for the next decade. Well, let's start with that, because there seems to be a lot of confusion about what climate change is, what global warming is one versus the other, could you tell us what climate change is and if, they, if it is the same as global warming? So climate change is more the scientific term that we've always used to study past climate, present climate, and future climate. Mm -hmm. uh, global warming was a term used to refer to the fact that the planet is simply getting hotter. Mm -hmm. It can be difficult to understand though because yes, it's getting hotter. It's not getting hotter everywhere at the same rate. And here in Indiana, for example, Heat is an issue, the, the increased heat, but really it's increased flooding that we've had as a consequence of climate change that is also a big impact. So the term global warming doesn't really capture that, whereas climate change does. And so that's really, global warming is really a part of the effects of climate change. That's exactly right. Okay, so the confusing thing is for a lot of people is how do humans contribute to the impact that we're seeing. You mentioned flooding. And we'll talk a little bit about some other environmental things, but it's hard to make that connection for some people who get in their car every day, go to work, put in 12 hours, go to the grocery store, go home, pay bills, uh, binge watch Netflix. <laughs> How is someone sitting on the couch contributing to climate change? And let's talk binge watching, watching Netflix. <laughs> let's talk about all those activities you described. You yes. talk about driving to work. Yes. Um, you probably also turn on the lights when you get home, mm -hmm. uh, turn on the TV. All of those electrical sources are being fueled by something. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, they would be fueled by what we call renewable sources, like solar panels mm -hmm. or windmills. Mm -hmm. But in reality, for the last century, they've been fueled by burning fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are these carbon-rich deposits that were buried over geologic time, and they happen to be amazing fuel sources. So we've been using them. 
people are familiar with them in, in their in their terms that we use them, which is coal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. gas, gasoline, oil, mm-hmm. and natural gas. Mm-hmm. So if you're here in Indiana, for example, you binge watch Netflix, about 65% of that Netflix signal, the electricity for driving that, is coming from fossil fuels. Wow. Wow. So just throughout the course of living. Exactly. We're exactly. contributing to that. So... What, where do the solutions begin for the everyday person? Do I, are you telling me that I can't have lights in my home? Or what if I can't afford solar panels? And I do have a heart for climate change and I do want to be a positive contributor. What can I do? It's really interesting. I get this question a lot as a climate scientist. And my first answer is to vote. Vote for climate. The reason I, I, I cast it that way is you as an individual or me as an individual, right? I have a green power plant on my house, so all electricity comes from renewable sources. I ride my bike to work as often as possible. I try to do all of these things. All of that's really good for me. It doesn't really do anything for global climate change unless eight billion people adopted that practice. um, It doesn't do anything. What we really need to do is make your Netflix powered, that, that TV powered from renewable sources. And so that's beyond what an individual can really practically do in their life. But it's definitely something the governments do, right? Mm -hmm. And we do it all the time by incentives and regulations, right? Regulations are sticks to punish the the bad people, fossil fuel companies. Um, And there's regulations and incentives to support good behavior. And in, in this sense, the only reason we know good and bad is that we've seen the impact of climate change. And that is extreme heat. That is flooding. It's actually killing hundreds, if not thousands of people in each state in the country every single year. So, you know, that is a real cost, right? right. And governments are supposed to protect us from that, and they do it via, via laws. Got you. What about um, the notion that it's just too late for us to do anything to positively impact climate change? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say the best day to have started on this was 40 years ago. The next best day is today. The reason is that if we don't, uh, if we don't do the actions uh, to reduce our, to change our climate trajectory, right? If we don't do it today and tomorrow and the next day, it, we'll just continue on in this course. And and you know we we now understand climate change well enough, uh, largely because we know know how it worked in the past when that climate change was quote unquote natural. Mm-hmm. So we can actually forecast how it's what what the trajectory is going to be with with our impacts. Mm-hmm. And it's not a great one if we don't start acting very quickly. Right, right. I want to shift slightly and go into something that's been talked a lot about in this space, environmental justice, and and what that really means and, and the impact that it has on um, particularly marginalized communities across our country. Um, I'll specifically be speaking to issues that have happened in Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Texas. And let's start with Texas. There are railway towns uh, with creosote deposits in those towns that have contaminated the ground and air. Um, It's just now, even though we know it's been happening for years, it's just now, and by now I mean as of this year, Uh, been captured by our government that these whole towns that were getting sick and dying off, uh, they were dying because of contaminants that industries have left behind and have never been cleaned up. Um, 
that's a tall order to to have to go back that many years to uh, rectify a situation. Do you think it's possible for people and for for instance in those situations like I mentioned in Texas to to help those communities to clean up the land? What would that do? What would that look like? You know, I do think it's possible. I, I work on environmental justice issues right here in, in Indiana. My other hat is I work on lead poisoning of, of children. We're going there. <laughs> okay. And so we know that the first thing you do is clean the place up, right? Mm-hmm. Clean the place up mm-hmm. and then work to uh, address the harm that's been left behind, the psychological, mental, and often physical and, and health harm that's been then left behind. Mm-hmm. But you don't delay the cleanup uh, and put Band-Aids over it and hope it'll sort of go away and disappear. It doesn't, mm-hmm. right? The creosote's mm-hmm. not going to clean itself up. I mean, it will over millions of years, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, 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 it, we need solutions now. And this has been one of the most encouraging aspects of the Biden administration's sets of legislation that he's passed over the last couple of years. One of them involves a laser focus on environmental justice and community action. Mm-hmm. You know, often. Uh, uh, communities are kind of thought of as as like, oh, we've got to give them a few little, you know, throw them a few bones and it'll be okay. But this administration is going all in and, it, and it's going in across the entire span of go- government, right. uh, including the Environmental Protection Agency, the Housing and Urban Development, all of these things. Right, right. And now the criticism that they're currently getting is that they're moving slowly mm-hmm. and there is some backtracking when it comes to possibly drilling for oil in native lands. I won't go there yet, but let's come back to Indiana now. Okay. On the way here to this studio, you drove past brownfields. Mm-hmm. You drove past lead-infested communities in order to get here. The land that IUPUI sits on, the surrounding communities are highly infested. Everyone knows this, yet everything stays the same. How does an institute like yours encourage uh, legislators or leaders or people in the field to take a more proactive stance in cleaning up these communities? It's, it's a challenge. I mean, to be frank, it, it's a challenge because uh, they've long been neglected and um, we often don't even know where that contamination is because nobody's bothered to look at it. So I attack this problem in two different ways. One of them is I'm a huge fan of citizen science and what we call community science. So I provide tools in consultation with communities that will help them test their own environment. So I I serve as a a technical testing facility while people do their own samples. I've had a long-standing engagement with Groundwork Indy on this. Really? uh, That's awesome, actually. With the Kepra Institute, with uh, Keep Indianapolis Beautiful. And and we then we provide a public map of this. And so one example where this really does work is that there was a, a brownfield site in, in Martindale Brightwood, a very large uh, lead uh, smelter mm-hmm. that was sort of, quote unquote, cleaned up in the in the early part of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there was a couple, a few community champions there mm-hmm. saying, we don't feel our environment's cleaned up yet. And, right, and when you right. look at the lead poisoning of children, it clearly wasn't. So I worked right. with the Martindale Brightwood Environmental Justice Collaborative, okay. led by uh, Mrs. Gore, the most amazing uh, individual. Elizabeth I know. Gore, for those who are right. yes, <laughs> I can I can only call her Mrs. Gore, uh, <laughs> but yes. Right. Um, and what we did was we helped them collect samples from the environment, and 
they ended up finding that there's still significant lead contamination. And they said, you know, Gabe, what, could you contact the EPA? And I said, they're going to listen to you because this is your community. You you live and vote here. And they did. And the environmental, the EPA first doubted my results. So they came down and tested again. And, you know, a year or two later, they said, oh, yeah, this is still contaminated. We messed up the first cleanup. And they cleaned it up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for real this time. Wow, wow. It, it, and just, and I didn't plan on talking about this, but that's an excellent service that you provide side by side with a community or community organization who's looking to, you know, confirm that cleanups have truly taken place, you know, at the site of old dry cleaners or gas stations or just in old neighborhoods where homes have been demolished and probably not abated properly. Yeah. How would they be able to uh, contact your organization if they were interested in, in doing this in their own communities? Mapleton Fall Creek is yeah. another area, for instance, that's the whole community, for the most part, is a brownfield. Exactly. Yeah, just massive contamination of dry, from dry cleaning also. Um, we have our, our, our website. It's pretty simple. It's www.mapmyenvironment, all one word, dot com. Mm-hmm. So www.mapmyenvironment.com. You can get all of the resources you need there. But that's a very specific area. We test soil, dust, and water. Gotcha. Other issues like you're talking about, creosote, for example, mm-hmm. groundwater contamination is beyond our capability to provide that for free. We provide all these testing services for free. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but that's simply beyond it because the tests are far more complicated, which means expensive. Of course. <laughs> Another word for expensive. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, it's it, but it's great to know that you all exist and that you're out there and you're trying to provide that service. Um, let's, let's, I know that we're running short on time, but I I do have a couple more questions for you. Um, I've been hearing, and we've all been hearing about politicians talking about environmental justice. This has been on the tongues of many politicians who are setting their sights on redevelopment plans that they say will rectify past harms. Um, how do we, uh, as communities, in your opinion, ride alongside those efforts to make sure that it's being that those past harms are truly being rectified. There's a town in in Franklin, I believe, where there's been horrible cases of cancer and children. It's the same in one of the towns in Texas, Ohio. I haven't even talked about Michigan yet. <laughs> um but these redevelop it's not just a cleanup, it's a redevelopment sold and packaged with cleanup. Is that a sufficient approach, you think, to environmental justice, where they're coming in with redevelopment plans as opposed to positively impact the community alongside cleaning up the neighborhood? What is your personal opinion, not necessarily organizational stance? but Right. I think my personal opinion is when I've seen that happen, it's it's been a case of gentrification rather than cleanup. So it's in, in, it's, it just promulgates the environmental injustices in the sense that, you know, this, I, I have one example, this is a development on the east side of the Monon Trail here mm-hmm. in Indianapolis from 16th Street up to about 22nd Street. Mm-hmm. It was an area with a lot of vacant housing, yeah. uh, and I did some lead analysis around there with the, with the Indianapolis Star. Mm-hmm. Terrible lead contamination in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely African-American neighborhood, largely low income. Right. So they did a redevelopment and 
a lot of white folks now live on very clean soil because they redid the soil, you know, uh, along the Monon Trail. So I guess I'm a, a little bit skeptical that it's easy to do. I'm sure some smart cities can do it. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it happen in Indianapolis. Right. And that's why some people are suspicious of it because of some of the things that you've said. And I just was interested in it from your perspective. Mm-hmm. One of the last things I want to talk about are trees. <laughs> and their impact um, on neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, in urban areas, we have a decline in trees and forests. In the Butler neighborhood, there was a lot of angst over removing a forest. Uh, well, all of Butler Tarkington is a forest for the most part. Um, but the removing trees and what have you and the impact that it would have on the, not only the, the environment, but the environment for animals. Uh, for the insect population now being in the, oh, and I have to do full disclosure, being a resident of that community, it is strange to wake up to have bucks in your yard <laughs> because they've been displaced. You yeah, know? That's right, that's right. So what is, where have you all stood in that space and what, what are your thoughts on uh, trees and nature preserves in urban settings? I think they're just critical. They're critical green, what we call green assets. Trees serve so many functions. Mm -hmm. They help clean the air. Mm -hmm. They suck carbon back out of the atmosphere, so they fight global warming. Uh, They they absorb excess water during some of these flooding events. Uh, And they also provide a, a space for people to reflect on nature. We are organisms after all. We grew up in nature before we are, you know, grew up in front of screens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and it's nurturing. I, I just yesterday had a wonderful walk through the Merritt Nature Preserve, one of the few nature preserves there is, there are in, in, uh, in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And just the, the role that trees play in that of stabilizing landscapes, there's families playing, um, walking, it's really critical. And so we actually have a research study right now to document what we're trying to do for keeping Indianapolis beautiful mm-hmm. is to show in very tangible ways how their tree efforts can start fighting against environmental injustices. You know, when, when you drive around Indianapolis, right, right, you will see when you drive around any, any large city, right, you will see a lot of areas with a ton of asphalt and, and, and freeways. In a lot of areas that are like Butler, Tarkington, and Meridian, Kessler, beautiful green lustre trees. Exactly. Those exactly. are redlined areas. Those right. were, you know, racist policies. Absolutely. And the environmental impact of redlining is not, is still there. And we stopped that policy decades ago. Mm-hmm. If you look at a satellite map of green density of cities like Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you can, I can sit there and just draw the red line map right over it. Right over it. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting to me to see in areas where the city has, and we're talking specifically about Indianapolis, where the city has done a lot of redevelopment, that there are removal, there is a, an act to remove green spaces or trees in order to put up these new apartments or homes and the parks or pocket parks are more of an afterthought. Um, And, and the thoughts now, of course that happened more 10 years ago, the thoughts now are that they're going to be more proactive in thinking about that. But you know, there hasn't been a a large uh, you know, there people haven't seen a lot of that. You see it in, in spurts, uh, is it your expectation that you expect to see this moving forward with the new knowledge that we have, um, that politicians perhaps have as far as redevelopment in urban areas is concerned? And understanding, and I also have to say this, there have been studies about how even concrete 
conducts heat Mm -hmm. and how it drives up the heat in urban or more dense areas as opposed to areas where there isn't as much. So I gave you a lot to talk about. Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that latter point, we have a, a, a word for it. It's called the urban heat island effect. And you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And for trees, like um, urban urban forests, are yes. about five degrees cooler than right outside that when you're, when you're on asphalt. Anyone knows this who gets out in a parking lot here in the middle of the summer, right? Right, right. Um, so what what some counties do a very good job in is making sure that the developers s- slot out a very large amount of new developments uh, that will include green space. So it, that allows water to infiltrate naturally. That allows for you know green assets. Yeah, everyone wants to see trees and all that stuff, and not just lawn. Lawn's not a not a great environmental thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but some cities, again, I don't mean to bash on Indianapolis, but Indianapolis does not necessarily have the same uh, same level of, of green value that other counties do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and until we do, we'll continue building problems, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know the path forward. Right. We just need to take it. We need to not allow a block to be filled with completely a, an apartment building. Uh, that's what the developer wants to do because right. you get the most money out of it. Right. No, right. you need to add 30% of green space. I, I made that number up, but it has to be something, which means, unfortunately, it puts people like us, researchers, we have to start valuing green space in terms of dollars and cents. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's a pretty awkward thing to do, but we do it right. to try to show that the health impacts and environmental impacts uh, for green density in these new developments um, should be weighed in the same way that the dollars that the developer gets is weighed. Right, and we can't finish this discussion without talking about infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a lot of old pipes and sewage. This discussion really, really took flight with Flint. Mm-hmm. You had communities starting to talk out loud about old infrastructure, not just in Michigan, but in Mississippi and Indiana and Ohio and other places. And uh, concerns with how we handle water. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that you and your organization have talked about? We do from both sides. Okay. So I do active uh, water testing for lead, mm-hmm. for example, and mm-hmm. I've done consultation with the water company and others on how to help find those old lead pipes. You know, we still have a lot of, a lot of lead pipes in that are delivering our drinking water. Mm-hmm. Granted, Indianapolis's water handling capabilities are better than Flint's mm-hmm. and it, the water, the lead in water situation is not dire, although some taps do test positive. That's, uh, so you, that's something to be thinking about. Mm, yes, but yes. I also think that on the other side, we work on the, the, the combined sewer overflow. So our, right. our archaic system that's present in Indianapolis and most other cities, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. that allows raw sewage to leak into waterways. Right, right. And, and that is, oddly enough, still a problem in a lot of these areas. I wish we can go more into that. Unfortunately, we are at time. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Gabe, for being a part of this discussion. I want to also encourage people who listen to the show to continue this discussion um, on our social media, whether it's on our Facebook, Instagram, or on our website at pointcast.news. Thank you again, and thank you for your organization for all the work that you do. Uh, One more time for people who are interested in those free test kits or information on where to find testing, even if it has a fee. I assume you all would have access to that as well. We do. Uh, it's 
myenvironment, all one word, dot com. And it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you again. This podcast has been brought in part to you by Eliag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians and anyone who has anything to say. And of course, Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, please go to our website again at pointcast.news. Our visual, I'm sorry, I can't talk. Visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to like and follow 